it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one in store today. Uh, I, uh, do you remember? Well, first of all, we had that little PSA from Von Meter and company uh, that I always share on uh, days where we have elections. Today is primary election uh, in, in these parts, these parts being uh, Flint, Michigan, where my show is based. Um and uh, just just a reminder, folks, get out and vote. Primaries do matter. Um, we have a, an interesting lineup coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Author Michael Stickler shares the story of Nevada cattle rancher Cliven Bundy, um, as it was told to him by Clive Bundy. And we're going to talk about that. In the middle, we're going to talk about IBM... Uh, uh, data breaches and and so on with uh, the um, principal consultant for cyber crisis management at IBM Security, Lemore Kessem. And, uh, but first, we're going to talk about um, second chances, as we've done with Leon L. Alamine many times, but this is from uh, author and journalist Carrie Blakinger. Um, and, and a new book that she's written, Corrections in Ink, a memoir, which talks about uh, the difficulty of life after prison, and uh, we'll get into that. Tomorrow on the show, it's uh, Armchair Politics, and, and uh, we're going to, of course, have some commentary and analysis about today's primary election, but we're going to start to show off with uh, Harvey Wasserman, uh, talking about the differences between Florida and California governors with regard to solar energy. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my uh, guest this hour is a uh, journalist and author with a, uh, a new book uh, called Corrections in Ink, a memoir. And uh, it's um, about things that we've talked about a lot on this show, especially with uh, with my friend Leon El Alamin from the Maid Institute that works with uh, people 
when they get out of uh, prison um, on, on just sort of getting the second chance that uh, that people should get. And uh, that's what this, uh, this memoir is all about from Carrie Blakinger, who joins me by phone. Um, Carrie, good morning and welcome to the show. And did I say Blakinger right? You did, <laughs> and thanks for having me. <laughs> um, you know, the, the fact that you're a journalist um, it, it almost plays against the, the narrative of this book and this story as a memoir. Uh, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm I'm just saying that very often um, journalists go in and study this thing through the lens of journalism. But it, the fact that you were incarcerated yourself, you had to go through the process of, of starting life over again after incarceration makes it an inside-looking-out story. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess if what you're getting at is that, you know, journalists would typically write, um, you know, nonfiction that is not first person. Um, I, I was not really a journalist at the time that I was, you know, living through these experiences. So it's not as if I had been active in journalism and then um, gotten arrested and been incarcerated as a journalist. Um, I had done some writing for the student newspaper in college before, but um, and some freelancing here and there. But um, I do think I would have, I, I would have taken, I, I probably would have been even more of a pain to prison officials at the time if I had already been a journalist first. <laughs> well, let's, for the sake of the listeners, and to put things in context and to get our conversation started, can you give just a, a brief little synopsis of, of the book or your story, and, and we can take off from there? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a pretty normal upper middle class family um and i was also a competitive figure skater growing up i think that was the sort of most unusual thing probably about my otherwise normal childhood um i competed in paris which is where the guy throws you around and looks all dangerous and stuff and we competed at nationals twice um but to get to that sort of level of accomplishment skating has to sort of become your entire life and I left school every day around 10 or 11 in the morning and I'd go to the rink and train until 5 or 6 and then do my homework in the car on the way back. Um, and figure skating was my whole world and my whole identity and sense of self. And when my skating career fell apart when I was 17, um, my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. I just fell apart as well. I, at that point, already been struggling some with uh, some pretty serious eating disorders and depression, including some suicidal depression. And when skating, which was kind of the glue that was holding me together, started to disintegrate, I ended up pretty quickly falling into, um, you know, I, I pretty quickly fell into being homeless and doing sex work and um, became addicted to heroin. And that's what I did more or less off and on for the next nine years 
until I got arrested while attending college at Cornell. And from there, I got sentenced to two and a half years in prison. I did 21 months of that time and got out and eventually became a reporter who covers criminal justice. Well, let me, was it the the depression that you were dealing with off and on um, that prevented you from, from reacting to your partner, you know, breaking up the band, um, that prevented you from, from just shopping around and getting another partner? Well, I mean, I did, I did shop around some, as, as you say, I, it's just that figure skating is a sport where there are so many more women than men that, you know, he could find a partner the next day and he did. And for me, it could be weeks or months or never. And it's also a sport where, you know, at that point you were very cognizant that there was a pretty young um, age limit. I mean, not an official one, but just the reality is figure skating careers don't last all that long. And I thought that at, 17 uh a year off would mean the end of a career um or a year off from competing would would mean the end of my career i mean i remember there was a 23 year old skater that we referred to as the old lady um (laughs) yeah so you you know you internalize that you know you're being taught that you're getting too old from as long as from as young as you can remember so I knew that I might never find another partner, and I also knew that time was ticking. And so I did look, but didn't find one. And when it became clear that I was going to have to take that season off, I was um, I was distraught. And I didn't. I was not equipped to handle that loss because, on the one hand, I, I mean, I I know it's such a like bougie first world problem to lose your figure skating career. I get that, but <laughs> yeah, but you know, but it, in such a brutal way, like, it's like if you take a season off, you're done. Yeah, and the other thing is, I mean, I I was 17, right? You know, everything seems. Um, <laughs> I mean, every, even for someone who would, did not struggle with mental health issues and, and had been well adjusted, like which was clearly not me at that point, um, I think that still would be a, a big loss in a young life. It was, skating was my whole identity. It was my whole vision for my future. I sort of, I've described it as it's like if you got um, divorced and fired from your job at the same time, but also fired from every job forever. Um, Because that's sort of how it felt. I heard a comedian once use the phrase, I've been fired more times than George Jetson. (laughs) Um... (laughs) which happened in almost every episode right um you know and and on top of that i mean i think because of skating i didn't have any other sort of social circle or social skills or support and i had also been struggling i was i was just also very volatile i'd been struggling with some pretty serious mental health issues so yeah i mean you let's put all that together let's talk about that why where where do you think, as you look back and reflect, um, that those mental issues, mental health issues, came from? Uh, it sounded like everything think, was going think you okay. You could ask a psychiatrist. I don't know. I'm not, um, I mean, I, 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 
I'm, I, don't, I don't even know how to say where does depression come from. Well, I, um, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Carrie. I'm just wondering if you've made any assumptions or or if you had any assumptions. about. You know, I have a friend that makes a joke. He says, why is my life so much tougher than everybody else's? And and he means it to be fun and funny and, and all of that. But, you know, when you're going through something like that, um, do you assign a cause? Do you think, you know... Are you even aware that you're depressed and and make some assumptions about why? I mean, I I think I I was definitely aware that I was depressed. Um, And in terms of why, I mean, I was also very young. So, um, I mean, we're we're talking teens here, so I'm, I'm not sure any of my thoughts on it were all that insightful. I think as a teenager, I probably thought I was depressed because I hated my parents or something, you know. But, um, I mean, I, I think that, I, I mean, I don't know. Again, I'm not a psychiatrist here, but, I mean, I think that some of it is things you're just born with. Um, and I, I do I do mention that, that, you know, it seems like I've sort of always just had, a, a, you know, dark side. But I do think that some of it was probably exacerbated by... Um, you know, by skating, by having a very active eating disorder. Um, I mean, certainly by having an active eating disorder. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there were factors, but I, I mean, I would assume that some of it is also um, something that you're born with. But again, these are probably questions for someone who's actually an expert. Yeah, I, and and again, Carrie, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts or or came to any conclusions about that how did you end up getting arrested at school you, you know i would expect that to be at a at a party or um you know some kind of a sex trafficking uh investigation or sting or something um i was not involved in sex trafficking so <laughs> Um, that no, but you said you did. You did some sex work, and I thought maybe it would be in in that capacity, um, or you know, something to do with drugs or something. How did how did um, the arrest happen? Well, it was not. Although I was in school at the time, I was not like physically on campus. You know, I don't know if that. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Yeah. I got the impression, you know, you you were sitting in a physics lecture, and you know they came in and hauled you away. Um, no, I, I I was I was not physically in a class at the moment of my arrest, but I was you know in school in the sense that I was enrolled in college at Cornell, and I was um, I mean I was walking down the street. Somebody had called the cops um, for a person and they saw me and I had a large amount of drugs on me at that point I was walking from the place that we didn't stash in the drugs back to my apartment but got arrested um, on the way more about second chances with author and journalist Carrie Blakinger straight ahead hello out there everybody it's me Tigger T-I-double-G-R that spells Tigger and don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about second chances with author and journalist Carrie Blakinger straight ahead. Now, you said that you were raised upper middle class, and and certainly not everybody gets into to Cornell. What? How did your parents react when you were arrested? They were, um, I mean, I, I didn't have to deal with seeing them in person for some time after that because I was in school in Ithaca and they lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I don't, I, it was several days before I actually spoke to them. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think they, you know, I think they hid their, um, I, I, if, if they were surprised or shocked, I think they hid it fairly well. Were they supportive? Um, yeah, it was, there was some. And not at first. I mean, you know, we we had some uh, we had some tension at first, but uh, I do think that eventually it changed our relationship a lot. In that, um, I think it sort of forced my parents to readjust their expectations for um, what our relationship would be. You know, I, I I think they sort of came to understand that. You know, okay, maybe. This was not, she was not, she's not been the daughter we wanted in every respect, but this is the daughter that we have, and, you know, this is what we're working with, and we've actually gotten along a lot better since then, and for my part, I mean, I, I, when I was in prison, and they started visiting me, once I got sentenced to prison, and they were visiting me there, um, I just, I, I was incredibly brutally honest with them about pretty much everything, like, just the, the worst parts of daily prison life, and I think that they, you know, understood that I was I was finally not holding back on anything, and in the long run, I think our relationships ended up much better. Now, some of the things that you were being brutally honest with them about, uh, you have brought out for the world in this book, this memoir, and and I can't help being curious. What made you decide you wanted to share your experience with the world and not just get yourself back on a on a um, decent path and and put it all behind you? Um, wow, there's a few different ways to answer that. I mean, I think that even before I even wrote a book, uh, years before, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to just sort of quietly move on and put it behind me. Um, in part because I was, you know, it, it was a relatively high-profile arrest in that area. And, you know, for years, if you Googled me, this is the first thing that would come up, this and my mugshot. Um, and at one point, a couple of years after I'd been out, there was a local reporter who was doing a story on the increase in heroin use in Ithaca and reached out to me and, you know, said that they were going to have to include me in the story, which, you know, made sense because it was one of the high profile heroin busts in recent years at that point. And, um, I was pretty freshly out of prison and wasn't particularly interested in being on the front page of the paper again. And, you know, the reporter told me, 
like, okay, well, if you don't interview, I'm, I'm probably still going to have to include you anyway because there's a high-profile boss, and if I don't get a different picture, you know, we'll probably have to use your mugshot. And he wasn't being a jerk about it. Like, that's just the reality of journalism in that time. I guess it was 2013, 2014. Um, you know, his editors would have, you know, made him include all that. And I understand why my, you know, the fact of my arrest was, was probably relevant background at that point. Um, but, you know, my... my when when he mentioned putting a mugshot in, I was like, oh, God, no. Like, <laughs> my mugshot is one of those ones that, you know, it looks like a faces of meth mugshot. There's scabs all over my face. You know, my hair is all disheveled. Like, I, I, it's the worst picture of me. I look like a mess. And so I was like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a different picture and I'll interview. And he was very kind about it. And, you know, he did not misrepresent anything. He very much explained how this was going to be framed and how it was going to come out, and it was fine. But in the process of that, I, I realized that this was probably not something that I could just um, hide from and move on, and that if I wanted to own the narrative of my life, that I needed to, um, I needed to be willing to tell my story and tell it on my own terms and be open about it, because if I was telling the story on my own terms, it was never going to be a gotcha or a thing that someone could, you know, threat me with in, in, in any way. And so I, I think that is the point at which I realized that I was going to be relentlessly open about my past, but it was a number of years before that actually became a book. You know, in the yeah. meantime, I did lots of interviews about it and people would interview me about my life. But it wasn't until 2018, 2019 that I actually um, decided to move ahead of the book. Did you find yourself in the process of writing the memoir facing some things that you hadn't faced through interviews and your own reflection? Um, not particularly. Um, I... You know, some so, people talk about writing memoirs as being very therapeutic and, you know, they they face things they really hadn't thought about. No, I don't think I felt that way. I mean, it had also been, you know, I got out in 2012 and I started writing this in 2020. So there'd been a decent amount of time to sort of work through this in process. And, you know, I, I had written pieces of it in essays. I had been interviewed about it often so I sort of had to think through and work through some of these things um, a lot. The one thing that I did notice from writing it is that I had never, you know, I'd never taken all my experiences and stacked them up like that, right? I'm, I'm used to telling these stories <laughs> right. in, you know, in bars or in essays or, um, you know, in podcasts, that sort of thing, individually as anecdotes. And I'd never lined them all up back to back and sort of stood back and looked at what they looked like together and finished and I was like wow that was that is like way worse than I thought like my prison experience was far worse than I remembered it than the way I allow myself to remember it when I think of it in individual moments um so that was definitely interesting um and I say this of course I want to acknowledge that I did have an easy prison experience you know I was in a women's prison in New York I now live in Texas where I cover prisons in Texas. And, you know, southern prisons are a completely different ballgame. 
so I, I recognized that I had an easy prison experience, but um, when I actually read through it, it's still, uh, you know, it's still harrowing and it's far worse than what I'd allowed myself to remember. The name of the book is Corrections in Ink, um, a memoir by Carrie Blakinger. Carrie, um, in the in the book, how how much of the book is about your life leading up to and including prison, and how much is life after prison? So I think um, let's see. I, I I think probably about a quarter, maybe is before prison, about a half is in jail and prison, and um, I guess it's actually probably more than half, and a little more than half in jail and prison, because it's probably a little less than a quarter that's afterwards. Um, but in the beginning part of it, I, I I start with a braided narrative structure where I'm flipping back and forth between pre-incarceration and jail. What is it that you're hoping people will get out of this book? I hope that people who are in prison or in jail can read this and have hope for second chances and for people who use those second chances to reach back inside and amplify the voices of the people who were there. And I hope that for people who have not done time and don't have connections to the prison system, that they will read this and understand better some of the systemic barriers that prevent so many people from realizing the second chances that I did. You know, the United States has more people in prison than any other country um, on the planet and, and really in history. Um, and and I'm I'm curious what your thought was. Everybody in prison says they didn't do it, but did you? That is so not true. Oh God, drives me crazy when people say that. Yeah, uh, well, that's that's the such thing. A, it's, that, such a, it's such a trope, though. I get it. I mean, I'm not criticizing you. I, I, no, no, no. But it's it's the 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 common riff that we hear. Everybody yeah. in prison says you know they don't belong there. But did you encounter people that you don't think belonged there? that should have been dealt with a different way? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big difference between, like, is this person innocent and do they belong in prison? Like, those are different questions. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, because I think there's a lot of people that were guilty of the crime they were convicted of, but for whom prison was not a helpful intervention. Um, you know, prison does not equip people for success after prison. It is, you know, dehumanizing and traumatizing in a whole myriad of ways. But it also doesn't do any of the sort of most basic life preparation skills. Like, it's it's not helping you get a job afterwards. You know, even if you manage to get into a rare educational or vocational program on the inside and you get out, you still don't have very basic reentry supports when you get out. And Honestly, even if you did, prison is such a, um, I don't know, such a fake environment. Like, it doesn't, it, it's very odd to expect that you can teach someone to live in normal society well in the free world by putting them into a place that in no way replicates or mimics that. 
are, are you saying that there's not a whole lot of rehabilitation going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think the recidivism rates alone would would be a testament to that. But but yeah. that's you know what though, and and you expressed it very well talking about you know these programs inside, um, you know attempts are being made, but they're ineffective because it, the life that people are living is so different than what they're going to experience when they're outside. And one of the things that is a huge stumbling block is that with lots of people applying for jobs, one of the first ways to screen, you know, potential employees is whether or not they've been in prison. Yeah, it's, um, that that does make it hard. It sort of it it, it makes it hard, obviously, to. Um, rebuild a life after prison i mean you could spend you your whole time, your time and yeah you could spend your whole time you know serving your your time thinking you know i'm i'm going to be different this time i'm not going to you know engage in those old bad habits i'm going to get a job i'm going to be you know a, a, a functioning member of society and then you get out and nobody will touch you then what do you do yeah um yes yeah. i mean i think i think that is I, I think that's very difficult, and it's not just about um, employment. Like, there, it's also really hard to find housing. You know, it's hard to find safe, stable, affordable housing um, for anyone, I suppose. But especially if you've done time. I mean, it's been ten years for me, and I, I have, you know, it's a nonviolent felony, and I, I still have a hell of a time finding an apartment. What did you experience when you when you got out and started, you know, trying to figure out what's next for Carrie? Um, I was incredibly lucky in that um, I had a place to live. First of all, when I got out, I, had, you know, I had a partner that I was dating that I could live with, and I, for the first year, you know, I did freelance jobs that I found on like Craigslist um, and then someone introduced me to a local reporter and editor who wanted to interview me for a story and afterwards said hey do you want to try writing some for us and I started freelancing um, and the pay was extremely low and would not have been something I could survive on but again I was lucky that I had a partner at that point in the place to live so the fact that I did not have a job that would um, pay enough to make ends meet on my own didn't matter. Um, and so I was able to start in, I was able to get a start in journalism. And, um, you know, after some freelancing, I got hired full time and then eventually, you know, moved on to another job. And I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate to be in a field where it's possible to find a, a career at, with a felony. Um, it's definitely, I think it's definitely changed the of my career and I suspect that it is still a thing that makes difference when I'm applying for jobs in general but um, I've been very fortunate to have been given chances and to be working in a field where those chances are even a possibility on the table. What needs to happen to make that transition um, if not smoother possible? I mean, I think there's a lot of things. I do think that 
fundamentally people need stable housing first. So I, I think that in order to hold down a you know solid, stable job, people need to get housing. And, and that's a huge um, and difficult expense to tackle for people coming out of prison. And then you also have the issues of transportation, which might be easy in like a city where you can take public transit. But if you're in the middle of nowhere, if you're in the country, um, those are also a pretty significant expense. So, I mean, there's those things. But then when you look at the hiring side of things, I mean, I think some of this is about a cultural shift in, you know, in how we view people who have served time. Yeah, you know, I mentioned uh, casually as I was uh, introducing you that I've had a guest on the show quite frequently that has an organization based in Flint, Michigan, where my radio show is, is done. And uh, it's called the Maid Institute, and he is an ex-con, or as he would say, a returning citizen. <laughs> and um, and and he has a program that has become very popular with with uh, local and state um, elected officials and philanthropic organizations working with people when they get out of prison to train them for certain kinds of work. And, um, you know, they're actually doing like a, a version of Habitat and building homes, you know, for people to live in when they get out. It's it's really quite an amazing program. Have you come across programs like that in in other cities or in your coverage of uh, uh, prison and post-prison um, in Texas? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are generally a variety of programs in different places for helping people get back on their feet or find employment or get job training. But, you know, a lot of these programs are sort of spearheaded by individual nonprofits in, you know, very local areas. So it's not as if there's some sort of widespread network or, um, you know, safety net to help people who are coming out. It's it's a much more patchwork series of, of options. And and maybe that's the the next phase is is for those organizations to um, uh, connect and and serve as models for cities and towns that don't have similar programs. Um, it, it's it's an important. It's an important part of the criminal justice system. I mean, yeah, we have to react. We have to do things when laws are broken. But, um, you know, may, maybe not everybody needs to go to prison. And, and maybe when they get out of prison, not everybody should be banned from rejoining society. I mean, I would argue that maybe nobody should once they get out of prison because if you've done the prison part, you've served your time. And yeah, that's a good point. It seems like it's not, it's not up to the rest of us to add on all these extrajudicial punishments because that's what it amounts to. You know, a court has sentenced someone to one thing, and when we continue to hold that against them, even after they've served their time, we're essentially adding on all these other extrajudicial punishments. Yeah, that's true and a good point. I just, uh, But the way, the way things are, I think it's more palatable for... Uh, uh, a lot of people, 
you know, for those people who haven't had a run-in with the criminal justice system or spent any time in jail or prison, to think of it in terms of, of being more accepting toward nonviolent offenders. Yeah, I think that, you know, in, in some ways that, that um, doesn't get us that far. I mean, drug, off, drug offenses are a sizable chunk of the prison system, but they are, you know, they, you know that, that's not necessarily the majority in, in many systems. It isn't some. Um, and, I mean, there's also just the reality that um, there are some surprisingly violent crimes that have low recidivism rates. Um, and, you know, people are not necessarily, um, you know, the, the, the crime that somebody commits in, a, you know, hormonal fit of rage at 18 does not necessarily describe who they are at 40. Um, you know, I think that for years, part, I think part of the reason that we are in the place that we are at in terms of incarceration is because of the interest in focusing on the low-hanging fruits, the sort of, you yeah. know, palatable, like, nonviolent offenses. Um, But some of those violent ones, I mean, I think there's this perception that people in prison for violent crimes are just, you know, bad and violent people. Um, That is overwhelmingly just not the case. Um, A lot of people who are in prison for violent crimes, it was, you know, a, a, a single... A, a single act that does not describe who they are, or they are somebody who is struggling with mental illness and was not properly medicated at the time, or um, you know any any sort of number of other factors. But you know, it is not the case that most prisoners are just sort of you know running around doing violent things all the time. And I think that when people hear about the nature of some violent crimes, that is the assumption. That's true. Carrie, um, the time is flying by, and this is a, a fascinating conversation and an important one. Um, but we are almost out of time, and I always try and give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Of course, the book is called Corrections in Ink, a memoir by uh, journalist and author Carrie Blakinger. And, uh, Carrie, do you have a, a website you'd like to share with uh, listeners? Yeah, I mean, if people want to check out my work as a reporter, it's um, I'm on themarshallproject.org. Um, and if you want to follow my reporting on Twitter or on TikTok, my username on both of those is Carrie Block, K-E-R-I-B-L-A. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for talking to me. Take care. Again, uh, author and journalist Carrie Blakinger, and the book is Corrections in Ink, a memoir. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight away. Old-fashioned radio for a new Generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner 
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. We used to steal the wheels off of baby coaches to make go-karts. Now, those of you that don't know what a go-kart is, a go-kart is made from wood that you take old orange crates and stuff like that, and, and uh, it's, a, it's shaped like an eye, like a big eye. We'll stand it up for you. Uh, a board goes across this way, and then one goes down the middle, and then one goes across this way again. Then you have to make an axis so that you can make a left and a right turn, hammer, uh, hammer down rope and everything. So you can make a left and right turn. Then you need wheels. You've got to have baby coach wheels. Gotta have them. Nothing else will work. So we used to go out at night stealing baby coach wheels. 287 baby coach wheels we stole. The odd wheel was because Old Weird Harold had a Continental on the back. <laughs> and uh, you get in your, get in your old go-kart there and just sit in it and just pretend that you were driving all over the country. And you gotta have your own music to run to ride your, your go-kart. That was my music. I took mine from the from the, the Rough Riders. Old Weird Harold took his from the Lone Ranger. And Crying Charlie took his from the Green Horner. We had about three million kids all racing with their own music. And so the cops heard about our stealing because the mothers reported, their kids out here stealing our baby coach wheels. Every morning we put our children into the baby coaches, push them, the coaches don't move. Children look up and say, why me? So we had to hide them. And uh, we waited two days for the heat to blow over. And we brought them out Saturday. Saturday morning, go-kart championship of America. And we're out there, all of us, full force, 300 kids out there. And we're warming up our, our go-karts at the top of the hill. We had a race on Dead Man's Hill. It was called Dead Man's Hill because it went straight down for about a quarter of a mile and then it emptied out onto a freeway. Henceforth, the name Dead Man's Hill. And uh, we had everything. We had, we had guys that would make uh, pit stops and everything. If your wheel came off, guys would grab it and put it back on it to uh, have a two-hour pit stop. You know, because it takes a long time to hammer out the nail, straighten it back out, and then put it back in with a rock. You know, you can do it with a nail and a hammer, a real straight one, but you can't do it with a rock. Good. And we had a fireman. Little kid, three years old, used to follow us running down the hill. Had a cup of water in his hand. Whenever you went bad, he hit you in the face with, you know, and put you out, run back up. He was fast. So now we got the go-kart championship of America, and we're all warming up. I'm warming, I'm, I'm warming up my go-kart. 
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
TomSumnerProgram.com From the Tom Sumner Show Oh yeah You pilots get off of my lawn We're trying to do a radio show down here it's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>